traditional Irish music song and dance has conquered the world in recent decades, aided by extraordinary successes like Riverdance, Celtic, one one other shows as well. But at home, folk and traditional music are enjoying a resurgence, probably not are equaled in some ways uh, since the 1960s and early 1970s have we seen anything like it. The genre was reinvigorated and reinvented by the likes of Planksty, the Chieftains, the Bothy Band and another group who were pivotal in spreading the gospel of Irish traditional music and culture at the time, Clannad. Formed in 1970, the band were due to undertake an 18-month 50th anniversary world tour beginning in March 2020. It's an awful month and an awful year when you hear it. Obviously, global events scuppered that plan. And indeed, it was around that time the band members decided to call it a day, in fact, on Clannad and to say goodbye to the global stage. Next February, they will say goodbye to Irish audiences with a farewell show at the Three Arena in Dublin, a show rescheduled from its original date of December the 9th. Sadly, that rescheduling takes place in the wake of the recent and very sad passing of Noel Duggan, founding member of Clannad. And with me in studio, uh, two of the other founding members, Moya Brennan, Paul Brennan, to look forward to that show, uh, to look back at her remarkable half century of music. And, and I suppose initially, Moya, we have to say to remember to remember Noel, who, you know, even as I say, he's your uncle and I think of him on no, stage I, with you. He doesn't seem like your uncle at of all. Of course he's not. <laughs> I mean, you know, when people were coming up to me at the, at the wake and saying, you know, sorry about your uncle, I kind of had to blink a couple of times because like he was three years older than I was, you know. Our houses were right beside each other, like you go from our front door to their back door. And uh, so we just grew up together. So mm. I like they were brothers, you know, yeah. himself and Pai. They were really brothers. Um, and and that's why it's, it's yeah, it, it's been really hard. It's hit us fairly hard. Um, it was sudden. He was out having a meal and I got a phone call on Saturday night from my sister saying that, you know, and... I had been with him on the Wednesday. I had to go up to Dublin and um, I, I just couldn't believe it. Mm. I couldn't believe it. And it was just, there was a, just a huge sadness yeah, around it. That's yeah. very hard to explain. I found it really difficult, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, particularly that, because it, it was that, it was the closeness. It wasn't an uncle. You, you know, you kind of no. think, well, of course the uncles are going to go first. Mm. But not in the order of, I was asking you before we came to Airpol, uh, the, the twins, mm. uh, Noel and his twin, were, were the youngest of that previous Family generation. The Duggins, yeah. And uh, like we grew up with them when I was when I was going off to boarding school, 13, 14. They were, you know, a little older than me, but playing guitars. And I was like, what is going on <laughs> yeah. here? I wanted to get my hands and Paddy was teaching me and Noel and... We were just there like, were a few couple of groups as well. Oh around, yeah, we were, bands we're around just, the area. We were mad you know, were, for it. We were just yeah. and we were hanging out. We <laughs> yeah. were best mates. It was mm. we were like a garage band, a summer band, and then Leo bought the bar, and you know it was our, our Leo's tavern, our instant stage, you know, yeah. to 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 try out of whatever we were doing. And mm. look, they, they, I mean, with Noel. We're in shock. We're, yeah. you know, I mean, his other two brothers are still alive. One yeah. in Australia, and uh, our mother. Um, you know, she's yeah. she's amazing. She's yeah. um, ninety-two and still going strong. And you know, it's she took it quite badly as well. Uh, yeah. Like we all did. We well, all. Did, it's it, just been. Yeah. Did you well that you know. kind of gap that she's looking at him? It's at whatever mm. in his seventies saying, oh, yeah. how, did that, "How did that happen?" Yeah. 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 But let us remember. I mean, uh, uh, his. <coughs> 
I suppose you're talking there, Paul, talking to us, Maya, about that, that kind of atmosphere that were around when, when you guys were in your early to late teens and they were in their late teens to 20s. Yeah. Mm. What, what kind of energy did Noel in particular bring to the initial, the initial energy behind Clan and the initial ideas of what you were doing? Um, he, was, he was just a go-getter. He was full of, you know, you know, life and, you know, always into things, always listening. We're always listening to music together and everything. But he was, uh, you know, he loved telling stories. He loved listening to stories. Mm. And it was all kind of... Um, but, you know, the the two boys, because when you talk about Noah, you have to talk about Padraig. Because, they, you know, on tour and everything, the two just went together everywhere. <laughs> they did everything together Everywhere, like I mean, there's some incredible stories about them. You know, you know, we were in Italy once, and 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 we booked booked into a hotel, and and Paddy comes down for us, goes into the restaurant, and and um, you know, sits down, has a piece of fish, and and insisted on milk. They were always milk. They loved milk with their with their dinner or their <laughs> lunch. And you know, in Europe, you, get, you don't get fresh milk, and you know, all, and, no, and, so they found that stuff. really weird. So anyway, he was coming out of the restaurant, and Noel was coming down the lift, and Pythic looked at Noel and said, "Ah, oh, you know, just had a great meal, you know, some lovely fish and potatoes." But Noel went straight into the restaurant, sat <laughs> in exactly the same seat, ordered exactly the same. <laughs> Trout, potatoes and a glass of milk. And when I came down in the lift, there was a woman from the restaurant, you know, the, the one of the staff waitresses, was out in the fire going, Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia. She, was, she just couldn't understand why somebody was kind of eating the same fighters. thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, like, they did that always yeah. together and, you know... I mean, there, we, we, you know, there are just some great stories that we've been going through, and yeah. Yeah. you know, you know, there was one time when they were out swimming. It was when they were when Noel was on the honeymoon with Padraig. <laughs> Noel wasn't married; Padraig was, but Noel went on the honeymoon anyway. And um, no, <laughs> there's stories, stories across oh, there. Listen, <laughs> there's stories, no, there but you know, Jan, <laughs> uh, you know, um, Padraig's wife said, "Oh yeah," and there's a, there's a couple of more stories there. And one of the things she told me was, you know, they were on the beach. And Noel went out swimming. And after a while, 20 minutes or something, Jan looked at Pythic and he says, you know, Noel's gone for a while. Should we be worried? And Pythic sat up in the sun and he says, I know, he's all right. I'd know if there was something wrong. Wow. And, you know, that that kind of... So, so, you know, sorry, you know, we're talking Mm. about Noel as well, but really the two of them were just... So when you talk about the energy that Noel brought, he he and Pythic brought together, just they were into the... You know, they were in a band called The Storms. They were into the popular yeah. music. And mind they were, you. They, my, they loved just playing you, the guitars. Mind memory, you, my memory of him, because as I said to you, going back 13, 14, he had an electric guitar, a K, yeah. sort of a, a semi-solid, and Hank Marvin, oh, he was playing the shadows. The shadows. They were mad about I was kind of going, and he was down, 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 down. You know, all yeah. of that. I was kind of going, whoa, because we were listening to everything. Yeah. And yes. It was like... Uh, just influences. And he was yeah, a, yeah. He was a and, big character. And those yeah. wide influences, I think, probably started to seep their way in a little bit further into the years of the band. But let's go back to yeah. to the very beginning of the okay. sound and when mm. everybody was in their their best uh, guidor behaviour, I think <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have sure. to say in this song. <laughs> Did that uh, exist? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever good behaviour is in guidor, <laughs> yeah. you were all on that. You were all on that particular bus for this mm. one. Oh, man, Rorta, 
Jesus' goodness is enough to know. Gonna la fronica, the cheer la cosa, bocca Here's Krishna Thra Do. I was checking with uh, Maya and Paul yeah. Brennan in studio with me this evening. And you said, even as that started, Maya, you said, that's way, that's right back. That was the first song that, that they, was the you first song that Clannad, I played with the boys as Clannad. Mm. Yeah. That was the first song. And who was the vocalist previous to Bef- that? Noel sang that song. Would you, you believe go. it? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And it's those early songs, Paul, I mean, because <coughs> a lot of them were of that very much of very close to the tradition. Sure. Uh, were they handed down from family? Were they all songs collected from the local area, songs that you were hearing being sung local in houses? Area, local area songs. That would have been a song from Ran the Forest, which is in where mm. the, the parish where Leo's Tavern is. We'd be listening to local singers coming in. We'd be picking up on songs. My grandmother had a, 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 a load of songs, of songs that we'd be learning at school. <coughs> but we had, we had, you know, we were surrounded by, mm. you know, singers and Rana Farsta and Gidor and the songs were all there. We, it, we just wanted to jazz them up and do, do our thing with them. Uh, and, uh, the rest is kind of history after that, really. And and that because you, you even you hear hints of it even in there. I mean, there's a, there's a quite a, a produced sound in the music underneath it, rather than mm. maybe the bareness. It's, it's the blend, I think. Yeah, especially with the voices, because we're a family, and it's just the blend, and it had that kind of earthy, ethereal kind mm. of vibe to it, unknowns to ourselves, really, because yeah. <clears throat> we were just. We were just it. turning up. I mean, obviously, with all the different influences and the instrumentation, harp, guitar, yeah. mandolin, flute, you know, it wasn't like a trad, you know, the fiddle wasn't there yeah. and accordion or something like that. Because so, it wasn't in our family, you see. Yeah. And if it wasn't in your family those days, now they have schools everywhere, you wouldn't have learned it well. Yeah. So we picked up the things that were my okay. father's band. Dad sent me to Sligo to learn the harp, you know, and it was just things that were around because... It was kind of not supposed to, Gaelic songs were not really supposed to sound like that. And, and not Kate, with those instruments, not with harmonies, all these kind of no-nos. I was gone on Changashin. Kevi on Inchin Shin or on Plan Shin Age Noeki, Gomech Nahoron, but Gomech Shivas, a Kano Asquelige. Oh, Rinmichin, Rinmichin Swiss, or who's? Navisha Nether Dunya, we call, Shinichet Hanwind. So can you? Yeah. yeah. I guess we made the call on Eilig or we made the Boeshti. I guess the call Kohjal faster. So yeah. it was no, very we, natural. No, was it good? We made the Gerrish or Kohjal made Wurang and the Beatles, Johnny Mitchell, Roddy Mushin. I guess you know me the screws and them. So the Wurang, Rahamid Rashkaji, and the Wurang Gaelic. I can rod the. Elisa. I guess the show we made Hannah here, Ron Chishin. Uh, Ahruhan, 
our Beach Boys were in. Tarigi among us. So I'll almost just in Surfing USA. Yeah. So yeah. Already, the, already the family, before you were talking about your grandfather there, already your grandfather was translating the songs of yeah. the Beach Boys. Monkeys. Like to, for us. Ahead of Johnny time. Mitchell. Yeah. Talk, I, about I, ahead I of his, talk about ahead of his, <laughs> ahead of his time. There's no, he was, he was, he was very, a very strong character mm. in our development. Mm. He was he so was. behind yeah. us, <clears throat> a gog, wasn't he? Yeah. He was, uh, I, and what was the, I suppose the aspiration, was Leo's bar, were you thinking, We've made it. We're playing in Leo's Bar. What more do we Not want? No, no, you still want. You wanted. You no, were, no, no. We didn't think of it that having any aspiration. We were just enjoying music. Uh, that was it. You know, yeah. and we we were we were you know, <clears throat> when kind of um, the the Letterkenny Folk Festival happened. We were still in school, secondary yeah. school. So I mean, <clears throat> yeah, but I you know. think I, I I picking up on that. You know, Leo's Bar. The summers were were phenomenal, and that's and as a big influx of people. Yeah. It it was, absolutely, yeah. we weren't. We weren't. It was only when we when we left school that we thought, you know, we, we were getting the Albert Fry yeah. TV shows f- turning yeah. up for, for those. But it was very a summer band. And, mm. uh, you know, until I finished school at 17, did we think, yeah, let's, what, let's, where do, we let's go from here? do something and, else? And things were moving along and the, the arrangements were changing. <laughs> but the big moment, I think, came when this happened. It is extraordinary when you listen to that. The Harry's Game, the theme from Harry's Game, of course, and Clannad Moya and Paul Brennan with me in studio this evening. And and you mentioned early on, Moya, this idea of the blend of voices and the family mm. of voices there. But really, that brought that to the fore. And you were saying to me as I was fading out there, people said they'd never heard anything like that before. Well, they hadn't, of course. No, when, I mean, particularly when, you know, when we ended up on top of the pops and people were just coming up and says. Where did this come from? You know, yeah, we're kind of yeah. looking at each other saying, oh, OK, nice yeah. one, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it's because it's you are talking about that was the level of stardom that started <clears throat> to hit through. It was international and it was top mm. of the pops. And it, it was, was a big game television st- oh, show. It was. Oh, it was. Yeah. It was. It yeah. was the biggest show that autumn from mm. ITV. And uh, we kind of knew because there were there were shows a couple of years before and we knew that it was... It, it was a, a big project and when we were asked to play to write the music for it based on the song that we wrote <laughs> or that we arranged in the album before which is a Scottish Gaelic song with a prophet the producer and Gerald Seymour arrived in Ireland and said will, will you watch this project will you watch this programme and then we went out to dinner we and they said yeah. that's something ethereal something yeah. that's what they directed yeah, us Yeah George Seymour was adamant about it I mean yeah. he was the writer of Harry's Game and and he just loved you know what we did with yeah. the Scottish Gaelic song and, and off we went to Wicklow yeah. and <laughs> within a couple of days we had a demo of that and Richard Dodd came in and he'd work with 10cc and there was all that kind of vocal thing and we layered and uh, mm. 
as I say, a game changer for us because it, really it changed. How, how much did it change things, Maya, would you say? Well, we, we recorded our first album in two days. Uh, and a bit and uh, the sixth album that we did still with Gaelic songs and everything I think it took 10 days uh, and that included mixing so you know you were there with record companies knocking on your door um, <clears throat> no contract because we only signed for the one single because nobody didn't know they didn't know yeah, what to do yeah. with us you know so you know so somebody flagged the single and went out and people just lapped it up and uh, so all of a sudden we had a record company and we were able to go into a studio and experiment wow. and spend more time and it just and people knew this you know you'd mention who you were and they'd say oh I love Clannad you know yeah. it's like <laughs> yeah all sorts of ways of saying that name I bet you yeah, uh, yeah. oh there's, yeah. Pla- there's places still you know when I oh, and they say who, who do you sing for and I say Clannad and especially if you're in America and they say oh I don't know I don't know is it Clannad oh I know that I don't know them <laughs> well it, no. the game changer was this is that we were you'd see a folk band earning our shillings mm. touring in Europe and stuff like that and you get a hit and it changes. We're selling millions of records. We've got mm. a major company. It changed the whole way. Well, I was wondering too, how did it affect the live gigs? How did that, you know, the style of Harry's game there and of other songs, or how did that start to seep its way in? Because that there's a lot of synth and a yeah, lot of but, stuff going but, on there. Because we were already doing that with Scotch Galaxy. Yeah. What we did was we eased into it because Magical Ring then is us still folky. Mm. You know, we used a couple of, you know, we did, we did a couple of... Uh, you know, we wrote a song myself, Passing Time, yeah. uh, you know, in a day out in Clontarf and Moya's the place. Thing, the thing was, though, we added, uh, uh, what we added on stage was percussion drummer. And it was like, everybody was saying, oh, what are you kind of doing with the drummer? And you kind of look at them and you say, in 1973, we had the jazz um, Johnny drummer Wadham. Johnny Wadham playing oh, no, on our first, first album. album. <laughs> yeah, I, I rest yeah, my no. case. And we had Robbie Brennan on our second. <laughs> well, yeah, we we so, always had a drummer. You know, but, but it's but, just people didn't hear that. It's just yeah, there, so you they, know heard, I mean? they heard the Irish song. So it was just song. one of yeah. those things. Yeah. You know? uh, but uh, here's when uh, Gia Yeve, uh, the Geron Sinead, she chalked to the show, uh, Sinead and this message. I remember Clannad coming to play in Rana Fersta when I was in the Gwaeltuk <laughs> at the tender age of 13. Oh my God, we used to do those things. So did that continue even when the international stardom was there, Paul, or did you have to... That was, that was, that was early days. Yeah, yeah. because we, we, obviously, um, you know, our gigs, because we didn't sing our shows in, in English, mm. we, wouldn't, we wouldn't get so many tours in Ireland. So we were no. very creative in terms of going out <laughs> yeah. to the Gale Skull or to the schools and saying, yeah. could we do shows? And so, we went so around the, the country. Yeah, so the, so the Gale Skulls during the summer... We were always down around the Farsha or down in the Arklingador doing our annual kind of <laughs> show. And it's amazing. Whatever, you yeah. go around the world and people come up to you sort of saying, mm. I saw you in Tum in Loretto or I saw <laughs> you in Rana Farsha like you should yeah, there. And, you know, it and it's lovely. And, and it continues on. Your own children, um, Maya, are involved <laughs> now, are they? Yeah, They are. They have their own um, influences and different, you know, singer-songwriters and, and Paul's uh, got a sort of a, in the techno kind of vibe. But they grew up with Clannad and they loved Clannad as well. I mean, Ashim was playing Clannad when, <clears throat> you know, other people might have sort of, you know, shut their old mum and no, uh, uncles and everything. They were really into it. So, so when Pwede kind of um, left, 
you know, she was playing the bazooki as well. So we added her in and then Paul was a keyboard player and all of a sudden... It's, you know, still the family band with yeah, Ashley and Paul there. Yeah, it's a lovely narrative to kind of really appreciate it because what, what happened, this final journey happened as a result of obviously Predic passing in uh, 2016 <coughs> after we did that world tour after Nether. Mm. And then we went, we did nothing. We were kind of very, very hurt about that. And we did this unplugged tour in 2018 in Germany. And that's when uh, Paul Ashley and, and Paul. Yeah. And we just enjoyed <coughs> playing again. And then that's when yeah. us sat down and we said, you know what? Let's call it in. Let's go yeah. out on a high. Let's do this final yeah, that's farewell when we decided world we do tour. The farewell yeah. tour. 2018. Yeah. yeah. And this. I mean, and they, they say, of course, they have Gaelic as well. And there's great singing, singers. So yeah. the blend was. You know, yeah. you know, it was good. I, I, I'm just wondering <coughs> what the emotions will be like in, in February because there'll oh. be so many memories, and I suppose, Patrick and, and, and Noel, no doubt, will be there. She, they won't be on the stage with you, but they'll they be will. all over the gig, I'm guessing. They'll be all over it, they yeah. Certainly will. It's going to be Super quite emotional, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, because, you know, even when we're doing these um, these gigs in Europe and everything, um, all kind of since last April and everything, we go out on stage and they'd be clapping. Yeah. For seven to eight minutes before, before we even started. before yeah. we started, yeah. so it was really emotional, like being on stage. Yeah. And yeah. they were Cologne or Berlin or Copenhagen, knowing that this is the last time we were out there. And, and it's Noel, really nice. Noel was yeah. just on, having been on that tour, just cutting in under there. He was playing. No, myself and Kieran well, you were, and you the weren't thinking room, that he was going about going anywhere. Yeah, playing. Mm. Uh, uh, I first saw. Uh, at Clannad Music in Lochanur oh, when I was on, about 12. <laughs> Competition <laughs> on now. Who's oh, the youngest ever to see Clannad? There's Lough another school we used to go. For yeah. no, no, it was on the Fuam tour, in fact. Um, an amazing yes. show, says Paul O'Kane. Oh, Listen, we, of course, we could keep going to 8 o'clock, yes. but yeah. we better stop. Sure. Um, can I finish up with in a lifetime? Because it kind of it kind of sums things up in some ways. Which of you lead me into it? Uh, yeah. You're both the point well, to each other. Absolutely. Um, uh, just, uh, I mean, um, uh, uh, a match made in heaven when when it was a possibility. There was a riff there that Kieran wrote. We were we were flying high at that point, having come out of Robin of Sherwood. We wanted to knock something really special out, and uh, we started that album in Switzerland. Arrived in art in Dublin. And there was rumours, and then he walked into the studio, yeah. and then he we started was with Steve down and I. the dockers, and you know, just they were their offices were there. We were in the old Windmill Lane, and just kind of it all kind of Something very else. organically came together yeah, in yeah. a way. And it, there was the, it was just there was a lot of respect there for the between the two bands, and then we became great friends. Yeah, but you know, August Thank you so much for being in with us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Sean. And let's finish up with In a Lifetime. Looking forward to February already. I can feel the emotion. I can feel the emotion for a million. Thanks a million. Thank you.
Men in a Lifetime there, performed by Clannad and Bono, of course, written by the brothers Paul Brennan and Kieran Brennan, produced by Steve, Steve Nye. And how wonderful it was to have Moya Brennan and Paul Brennan of Clannad in with us this evening. Farewell concert takes place in the Three Arena, Saturday, February the 18th. Uh, put that in your diary. The concert, of course, was originally supposed to take place this year on December the 9th. So obviously fans who have bought tickets for the December show, which was uh, cancelled because of Noel Duggan's death and the, the guys wanted to gather their, their thoughts, I think, before heading straight into doing that concert. But those tickets that you had for the December gig remain valid for the rescheduled show in February. Uh, and if it doesn't suit, you will be uh, refunded from Ticketmaster. A twisted six-part horror thriller, The Devil's Hour, arrives on Prime Video this Friday. Lucy is a weary social worker who wakes up every night at 3.33am and whose vivid nightmares are beginning to take their toll. But are they nightmares or are they sinister memories from a life that isn't hers? When she's inexplicably connected to a string of brutal murders in the area, the answers that have evaded her all these years finally come into focus while a character played by Peter Capaldi becomes the prime target of a police manhood and a manhunt rather. With me in studio is Chris Wasser, who has been watching The Devil's Hour. I watched 20 minutes of this. Uh, I, I got just got to watch the beginning of it t- today, Chris, and I thought there's a lot happening here in these first 20 minutes. So can you give us the the key into it what the important details are that we know if we're going to head into watching this hopefully I mean I watched two hours of it Sean and I needed a lie down afterwards uh, but the gist is uh, you summed it up there you've got Lucy played by Jessica Rain uh, brilliantly portrayed by Jessica Rain and she is this uh, completely frazzled social worker she's waking up every night at 3.33 not half three not three o'clock she's keen to stress that she's waking up at the so-called witching hour or as this series likes to call it the devil's hour and she's plagued with nightmares during the day she's kind of plagued with trippy bouts of deja vu uh, Um, And we're kind of led to believe that all of these nightmares and all of these memories that she seems to have, and we see her memories play out, they might not actually be her memories. She also has a, a problem going on at home with her with her uh, child Isaac, played by Benjamin Cheevers, and he's eight years of age, and he appears to have this personality disorder. He's he's quite emotionless. Uh, he he rarely smiles. He's sleepwalking a lot at night. And uh, uh, Lucy has brought her child to every psychiatrist in the county, but they can't say what's wrong with uh, with Isaac. But we're beginning to suspect, just in the few minutes that we get to spend with him, that he may be haunted and that the house that they live in may be haunted and we we suspect that because one night Lucy goes in to wake Isaac up and he's coming out with all these you know horror tropes Mm. on where he's saying who's that strange man in the corner and we're thinking red alert (laughs) it's time to get out he's doing everything except saying red rum but he's only only an inch off it let's and people will understand that reference I hope let's have a listen to uh, Jessica Rain as Lucy Benjamin Chivers as Isaac the young fella and they're meeting Dr. Bennett character played here by Mira Sayal to talk about his behaviour which includes sleepwalking and talking to imaginary friends Isaac do you remember waking up last night going downstairs and do you remember why you did that Meredith was crying sometimes Isaac imagines things people that's quite common isn't it imaginary friends is that right, Isaac? Is Meredith your friend? She can't hear me. She's been with us since the move. She's not the first, though, is she? We've had um, Barney. 
Stephanie. We even had an Alejandro once. <laughs> How's he at school? Fine. I mean, I, he does well. No behaviour issues. She always says placid. He never cries. He never laughs. He never gets mad. He's just... Did you say something, Isa? I'm not supposed to be here. That's okay. We're gonna go to school just as soon as we're finished with Dr. Bennett. Oh, Ruby, please. Ruby. That's Jessica Rain as Lucy, the mum in that equation, Mira Sayal as Dr. Bennett, or Lucy, or Ruth, isn't it? What did you tell Ruby. Uh, Ruby, we're supposed to call Ruby. And Isaac, played by Benjamin Shivers, the, the kid. And he, even in that, and he was quite spooky, he's quite kind of disconcerting when you're watching him. He really has that stillness that you need yes. for the, the oddness of the character. So uh, we start with that setup, and you're thinking, all right, <laughs> there's there's a family situation here. And, and she's very clear after subsequent to that clip about all the things that aren't wrong with Isaac. Yes. She's, and she won't take any kind of diagnosis at all. But very quickly it shifts into, uh, we see her at work, that's fine. But then it shifts into a totally different gear with a police detective. It does. Yeah, it, um, yeah, it spirals, Sean. Uh, it, it moves into a sort of a true detective setup. Mm. Um, and you're thinking to yourself, how are these things connected? And, and at some stage, they will be connected. But we've got mm. two detectives. One is this sceptical veteran who's kind of, you know, been on the job for years and thinks he knows everything. That's Alex Ferns, is DS Nick Holness. And then the other is a younger detective who is a bit bookish. He's a bit of an up-and-comer. And he really probably, he, has, he certainly has the mind for the job. But he doesn't have the stomach for it. He gets a, he gets a bit of a wobbly tummy whenever he sees a dead body, and that's uh, Nikish Patel as D.I. Ravi Dillon, and they are on this new murder case nearby to where Lucy lives, mm. and they begin to suspect that it might have a connection to an old murder case. And long story short, the more digging that they do, they actually come across this uh, grisly, grimy lodge uh, in, in in the countryside. And once they step inside, they see Lucy's name plastered across the wall. They see Lucy's image drawn in, onto paper all over this lodge and this lodge might belong to this serial killer that they've never been able to catch and that's where we see at the beginning and end of every episode that Lucy in these really kind of tricky flash forwards I'm not giving anything away here this Mm. is just the setup and it is quite complicated in these tricky flash forwards Lucy will encounter that serial killer and that's where Peter Capaldi comes into it Well let's have a listen to a clip Um, Lucy looks very dishevelled in all of these clips when these situations that we see her in she's talking to a character called Gideon Shepard played by Peter Capaldi uh, in what looks like a prison cell, he's kind of he's handcuffed, and it turns out. At, well, let's have a listen to the clip. What do you see when you look at me? A murderer, a monster. Why did you come here? You said you wouldn't talk to anyone else. And you came. Didn't have to. Well, they want answers. No, they don't. They want evidence, confessions. Close the file, forget all about it. Do you think I don't want to forget this? I know you do. But you won't. (laughs) 
And that's Jessica Rain and Peter Capaldi there in a scene from The Devil's Hour new Prime video series that uh, Chris Wasser has been uh, watching. So uh, the three basic setups that I have so far, Chris, are the the woman with the the difficult the child who's having these kind of sleepwalking yeah, difficult one. episodes. Her and her dreams, or are they actual realities, or or whatever they are? Yeah. And then the police force and what they're pursuing. You've seen two episodes now. Do they start? Can you? Are you starting to see the threads of how they might knit in together? Not yet. And in interviews, Peter Capaldi has actually suggested that it all kind of comes together by the time we get to episode six. But Sean, we haven't even mentioned the mother who has schizophrenia and is suffering with dementia. We haven't mentioned, you know, Lucy's ex-husband who seems to be terrified of the son and he might have a reason for that. I haven't even mentioned the people that lived in the house and the reason why we and Lucy might think that the house is haunted. So I'm beginning to think after just two hours of this thing that there are too many mysteries at the heart of the devil's hour yep. and that it might be a bit too top heavy. Oh, well, I was going to ask you that. Is is it just that it's, it's so confusing that you're kind of wondering about it or will you stick with it to see? Because yeah. presumably the, the pieces all do come together further yeah. down the line. I will it's stick great with it. There. Great performers. Yeah, Jessica Rain so far is very good and there are some great influences. At the minute, it's kind of a show that thinks it's doing things that no, no other show or film has done before. So you can actually see its influences first and foremost. You can see a little bit of The Babadook, a little bit of Silence of the Lambs and a little bit of True Detective, as I said. It would be nice if it's started to come into of its own if it started to have its own identity and I think in order to do that it needs to embrace its you know its 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 star performer I know Jessica Rain is very good here but if you have Peter Capaldi on your squad don't have him on the bench for the first two hours of a horror thriller and I think the scenes the few scenes he's only been in this for a couple mm. of minutes in those first two episodes that he's in it lights up so in order to kind of keep me invested I think we're going to need to see more of Peter Capaldi as this slippery sinister ah, yeah. serial killer because he's very good at it right well he might score a bundle of goals though in the final few episodes hopefully so hopefully you should stay to the end of the game you're kind of half with it are you I am I am but only because Capaldi's involvement right. the minute you see that Capaldi's involved and look Sean he's actually all over the trailers the poster he's yeah. all over the marketing of this thing so I am hopeful that it will get better but it needs I would hope as well that it loses a few actually that it answers some of the questions that it's that it's uh, uh, putting forward but that it maybe yeah. doesn't add, add any more mysteries all to it alright that's Chris Wasser speaking to us about The Devil's Hour all episodes of The Devil's Hour will be available to stream on Prime Video from Friday, October the 20th. So that might be a binge one rather than a leave it for weeks to waiting to find out what's happening. Yeah. On October the 24th, 1972, 50 years ago, Stevie Wonder released Talking Book, his 15th studio album. And those who bought the album went home, lifted the stylus and put it down on track one. Heard this. The sunshine of my life That's why I'll always be around You are the apple of my eye Forever you'll stay in my heart I feel like You know, if you 
bought the album on October the 24th, 1972 mm. and gone home and put the stylus down on that track one of Talking Book from Stevie Wonder. You'd be a happy chappy, I would have thought, Pat Carty. You would. I don't see how anyone could be in a bad mood now, even now. I think you've lifted the mood of the nation there, Sean, with that, just playing even a few minutes of that. (laughs) It's it's absolutely, I mean, it just is such a stunning song. And I was asking you, who, because it's not just his vocals that we hear, it's not just Stevie Wonder that we hear. No, the thing is, it starts off with with Jim Gilstrap and Lan Groves, who are backing vocalists throughout the album. But that's the thing, you know, he's such a master that he knew, well, they'll sound better than me at the start. And I know it's my name on the cover and everything, but you're so what? Let them have a go and then I'll come in and take over. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. That's the kind of maestro we're talking about. His 15th studio album. Mm. What mm. age was he at the time? He would have been 22. He would have been 22 on May 13th, 1972. So 22. 22 and a bit. Yeah, 22 and a bit. <laughs> 22 and a half. Yeah. And, a bit. Yeah. and it was his 15th studio album. So he, he was... He was performing from a very, very young age, Pat. He was, yeah. Well, he was he was signed at by Barry Gordy to Motown at 11 years old. So he did an audition. And the fact that, you know, he was great at the audition, but he also sang a song, Lonely Boy, that he wrote himself. You know, so and then so after a few false starts, he, he was touring with the Motown Review at the age of 12. And there was a single, there was a recorded live, the 12-year-old Genius, which was an album that came out. And then there was a single from that, Fingertips, and that went to the top of the Billboard charts when he was 13. So I think that's still the youngest person ever to do it. Makes Britney Spears look like a granny altogether. You know, that, and, and, and then there was a bit of a dip then, slight dip, but then he started having the hits like Uptight mm. and uh, For Once in My Life and Signed, Sealed, Delivered, which he produced yeah. himself. And uh, maybe we don't get it as much on um, You Are the Sunshine of My Life, but it's the strings in this album. That's what we're talking about as being hugely important, really, isn't it? Yeah, but it's it's not strings. It's 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 it synthesizes a lot of the stuff here, you mm. know. That he's brought in, and he, so he he had later on when he when when he gets to the grand old age of twenty one, he starts being influenced by uh, lots of things that are going on around him. Not only the politicization of of black music, but he starts listening to electronic music. So um, stuff like uh, the the. I have to get this name right. There's the Tonto Synthesizer, which is created by a band called, uh, I can't even find their name, because they're the, the Moving Headband Band or something like this. Two guys from Canada, one British guy and one American guy. And what they did was they got a, a Moog synthesizer and combined them together. So you get a polyphonic instrument. Mm. So you get, you know, multiple voices. And this was able to imitate other instruments. So Stevie could go even further into being a one-man band. Because that's what he he was playing practically. He was, he was doing practically yeah. everything on the record. Yeah. Uptight then was uh, was another of the important is another of the important mm. songs in the album. Where, where does this sit within the the framework here? Well, Uptight was a hit in in nineteen sixty five. So he's still only uh, you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and he's he's in England playing with the Stones and the Beatles and like that. Just even yeah. to think about it is amazing. So, in fact, uptight there, Pat, wasn't actually on the album that we're speaking about no, no, tonight. No, that's from a couple of years beforehand, yeah. But I does mean, it gives does it give us a hint of what was coming then on well, on? You, uh, could, you could say so. I suppose book. in between, you know, before this this came out, he um, part of the build up to this was he toured with the Rolling Stones, and what they used to do there was supposed to be a joint live album, never happened. But the bootlegs are out there. But for the encore, 
Um, mm. Stevie Wonder and his band would come on and join the Stones and they'd do Uptight, they'd do that song there, and then that would go into uh, Satisfaction. So you had these two bands playing together. So if you can imagine a, a night out in, in the Three Arena or somewhere where Stevie Wonder is supporting the Rolling Stones, and we're talking about Stevie Wonder and the Rolling Stones mm. in 1972, that must have been some night out. So one of the songs then comes from that later on, the big song on the album is kind of the genesis of that is on that tour. So and what what is the big song? We're talking about superstition yes. there, yeah. And uh, so there's 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 two there's two stories behind it. One he was he was uh, jamming with um, Jeff Beck, and uh, Jeff Beck was on the drums, uh, strangely enough, and that's where it comes from. And the other one the other one the other story. So there's conflicting stories is that he wrote it himself, and he'd given it to Jeff Beck. To, for Jeff to record in his next album, and that was a bit delayed. And uh, it was Barry Gordy again who came in and said, "This is a single. You gotta release this as a single, you know." And to even hear the start of that, and another story about it. I mean, what we hear on the recorded thing—that's actually Stevie Wonder playing the drums himself. And Stevie Wonder, it's said that he taught himself how to play the drums when he was about three or four. So eleven is an old man, really, at that stage. But at three or four, and if we saw, uh, say. Questlove's uh, Summer Soul documentary that won the Oscar last year. It starts off with Stevie Wonder playing a drum solo. The man just had music. Just pouring out of him. All right. Mm-hmm. Let's have a listen. There is Kind of the horn sound there in the background, yeah, Pat, yeah. of superstition. That's classic Stevie Wonder, yeah. really. That's the sound that he established on this album and that then carried on for a few albums well, afterwards. That, that uh, clavinet is what that uh, instrument is called there. He's playing a five octave sort of electric piano. Now, it was knocking around before he did it, but the way he sits at that and um, just makes it come alive in his mm. hands, that he could just take electronic instruments like this. If you think of other albums maybe around that time that had synthesizers and them, and one that stands out to me would be, say, Who's Next by The Who, which, you know, very famous stuff like Bob O'Reilly and Won't Get Fooled Again. The synthesizer's great on that, but it kind of seems to be kind of slightly apart from the rest of the band. Whereas what Stevie was able to do, I think, um, was, was kind of humanise these electronic instruments. Just, you know, for want of a better phrase, make them funky, you know, make them come alive in his hands. And, yeah, and, and the funk is there and the, you know, sunshine of my life making you smile. That's yeah. all there too. But there's politics here as well. There is, yeah. There's a, it stands out on one song in particular. There's a song called Big Brother on it. And, uh, you know, the lyrics go, he's living in a ghetto uh, house the size of a matchbox and politicians only come to see him at around election time. It's possibly aimed at, or it probably is aimed at, at Nixon. And then he carries it on in the next album, in, Inner Visions. There's a song called He's Mr. Know-It-All. But uh, I suppose he was influenced by what was going on at the time. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On would have mm. been the big one that came out the year before. But you also had Isaac Hayes. You'd Sly and the Family Stone. You know, it's Vietnam. People are coming back from Vietnam. Black Power. All this was in the air 
And Stevie's antenna was up. Yeah, and, and Big Brother kind of touches on on a lot of that and very does, yeah. very contemporary ideas as well. If, you know, 50 years later, yeah, it's absolutely. still as relevant now as it was then. Your name is Big Brother You say that you're tired of me protesting Children dying every day My name is nobody But I can't wait to see your face inside my door uh, just a little flavour there of Big Brother from Stevie Wonder's talking book. Um, I, I suppose the, the cover art and Paul Simon are important uh, aspects in this as well. There are, there is. I should say, yeah. Um, the, the cover is very, what the term they use is Afrocentric. So he's the cornrows and the caftan on. And then he had a message about his music. But it was in Braille only till about 2000 and, and at some reissue in 2000 mm. or something like that. But the, the Paul Simon story is very good. This run of album, Music of My Mind... Um, uh, talking book, Inner Visions, fulfilling this first finale, and another masterpiece then, Songs in the Key of Life. Just kept winning all the Grammys. But there was one year in the middle, 75, that he didn't release a record, or he wasn't, didn't qualify the Grammys. So Paul Simon wins it for Still Crazy after all these years, and he gets up, and the first thing he says in his speech is, I'd just like to thank Stevie Wonder for not releasing a record this year. <laughs> that, that, that was the main yeah. thing. And then it was he nominated, he, he inducted him in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame later and said, listen, Stevie Wonder was just pulling things in from other dimensions. Yeah. I think that thing, that, that, you know that dance he does, that famous dance when he's moving his head that's I think that's him his antenna just pulling stuff in just miraculous work from yeah, another yeah. dimension and I suppose he still his influence is still there today Pat thanks for coming in to speak to us about Stevie Wonder's Talking Head or Talking Book I beg your pardon uh, the album which is 50 years old can you believe that